out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I speak with my friend Gail. She lives in Australia now and we see each other only about once a year. I'm not going to say much more, as the chat is already quite long, so I shall let the talking do the talking. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day coaching and counselling program available, based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Enjoy Gail's journey. Gail, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good at this stage, yes. You were a bit stressed out when you arrived, yes. but you seem a bit more relaxed now. Yes. You know, seeing friends in pain is really not a nice thing, is it? No, it's no. It's an old, old long-term friend, so yeah. it's just not good to see it. Yeah. It's that feeling of powerlessness. Is you as girl right now can't do anything for you and mm. just so and i hate that feeling where i would really love to be able to help but i can't yeah well you can do the, the things you can do yeah. but it's not it doesn't feel like it's maybe enough but yeah. you have to let itself take its own process Absolutely. recovery is yeah know, it's a recovery of the body to health it is so weird that when the idea for the podcast started, mm. and I started a list of people I would ultimately like to talk to, you were on that list. Mm. But it was it was like in a pipe dream. I, I never ever thought that that I would get you in that chair to talk to you. Just and then suddenly you were in South Africa, and oh well, this might just happen. Fair <laughs> so, enough. Yeah. So I'm so glad. I never thought that this was going to be a possibility. So you are in South Africa at the moment on holiday. Mm. You live in Australia. But you are Scottish. Or do you... <laughs> you kind of... As if you're not 100% sure. You are Scottish. Were, were you born in Scotland? No, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> my family are all Scottish. Yes. I was the um, single daughter b- born in England. Okay. And I was raised to know that I was Scottish because it's always very important for Scottish people not to be thought of as English. Yes. <laughs> as you can imagine. But the truth is I became English. And actually, in my family, people would often joke and call me the Sassenach, which if you've ever had to watch um, Outlander, you'll understand it means the one from outside. Okay. Yeah. So in some respects, I had already not come from where I come from. Okay. When I first grew up. so, And that's kind of important in terms of me being a traveller. Yeah. My family had already left their home, so my home was never really a home as okay. such. And did your parents ever go... Back to Scotland. We went back all the way through my childhood for holidays and things, okay. um, but they never chose to go back and live. Okay. Yeah. And how did they end up in England? Or both of them Scottish? Both yeah. mom and dad? Yeah, both okay. from Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, so my father worked for the Scottish Railways and he took a promotion that brought him down to okay. England. <laughs> he took a train one day and ended in England. <laughs> yes. Weirder things have happened. Yes. And that too was interesting because in taking that train ride, he catapulted himself into the middle class, which his family were probably more working class. Okay. So added to the fact I was the English one with the English accent going back to Scotland, I was also very much a middle class yeah. child with, you know, 
people around me who were more um, blue collar and yeah. such. So, so it was a different. I, I was always seen as slightly d the different one. Okay, you two children. You did a sister. No, there was three of us. My middle sister died of cancer in two thousand and three. She was in New Zealand. That's right. Okay, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. 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 So that's what it made feels me like leave. yesterday, like the day. You're right. You're. Yeah, that's why I really left in the end. Is that when you left South, South Africa. Africa? I left it. Yeah, I left in two thousand and two. <laughs> it's been a while. Oh my God! I can't believe it. Yes. Back to England. So, this girl, the Scottish girl in England, where were you in London? Uh, I lived near Windsor, which is about thirty, forty miles oh, west lovely. of London. That's yeah. a nice area. Yeah. No, it was a lovely area to grow up in. Yeah. yeah. So that was. Growing up on the edge of London, we used to go into London for exciting times. Ah. Yes. <laughs> and did you grow up with any form of religion? Oh, yeah. Okay. I went to church every Sunday. My parents are Congregationalists, which is the sort of breakaway from Presbyterianism, okay. as far as I remember. Yes. And it was, I was, my family were very much involved in the church, but probably by the time I hit my teens... I already had, I remember my Sunday school teacher taking my mum aside and saying, your daughter has a very interesting mind. Um, <laughs> and so you do. <laughs> and I was already questioning, not so much the, re the religious tenets, but I was questioning how I saw people behaving in the church. Ah. I thought I was seeing a lot of hypocrisy. I thought yes. I could see a lot of, you know, the church committees and the infighting and the they weren't necessarily behaving as they were apparently meant to. I also t remember taking umbrage about communion. I had a bit of an issue about being told I was eating eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And so, yeah, not that our church was big on communion, but it, yes. So I began to question that. And probably around 14, I would think, I started a bit of a study of comparative religions. Okay. I was interested, so I went along to some a Mormon went to a Catholic church. Um, I did investigate Judaism later, but that was, I had a friend who was Jewish. And so, yeah, I just was trying to get the hang of and then got into kind of, oh, and there's things like Zoroastrianism and there's Hindus and there's Buddhists. And so as a teenager, I was quite interested in the role religion plays for people. Okay. While still attending church? Yeah, I probably okay. attended church until I left school, until okay. I left home, which yeah. was 18. Okay. Just because the family did it. Cool. And how did your parents react to girls suddenly questioning this, what I reckon they would like her to believe? Yeah, no, they weren't. It wasn't as if I was out marching and I didn't sort of suddenly join the orange people, so they weren't too <laughs> worried. But there was, yeah, there were debates around why was this the case. And I had the impression my, my mother was pretty much a believer my father was pro probably fairly agnostic but okay. went along so no there wasn't really a debate around that and I didn't become a communist so it was <laughs> not such a problem so you went to uni in Wales I did what? and I actually went to study economics funnily enough thinking about my son studying economics <laughs> and when I got there I realized that that was still probably a bit too narrow for me so I expanded and went into study of American culture. So I moved into cultural studies, which included economics and okay. the history of it, and but it also included literature and 
social anthropology and I found that it worked for me, probably if I worked my CV backwards because I became a researcher, yeah. that essence of how people are in their culture and what makes them who they are yeah. was really interesting. And then I ended up doing a, a more of a study in the rights of minorities or minority groups. So I ended up sort of studying Jewish American fiction. I studied feminism, not that they're necessarily a minority. I studied <laughs> black civil rights and I studied the American Indians experience in okay. um, America and such. So that was three years in in Wales. Yes. That was where I learned a love of nature and hiking in the mountains. Yes. And it's been with me sort of ever That's since. That's fundamental of who you are when yes. I think of you, yeah. Yes. And it's actually also quite probably quite relevant that that was perhaps the first time I was allowed to get out and hike because with having grown up with two different legs and an imbalance of my leg lens and I'd had operations for it, my mother was very careful about okay. letting me overuse okay, my legs. Yeah. So it was the sort of start of freedom for me to be able to just get out there and use my physicality. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So after those three years, the other thing was I think it wasn't a very, very onerous degree. So it meant that I had time to do a lot of traveling okay. in the holidays. And I sort of got to see Asia, which probably really opened my eyes. Awesome. My first trip was to uh, across Europe to Turkey. And that would have been in 1978. People would come up to me in Turkey and pet my hair because I was so blonde. <laughs> and they were definitely not. <laughs> and then in, I think, 78, I travelled to Sri Lanka, which was based upon us going to the Student Union Flight Centre and saying, where can we go? Where's the farthest we can go? <laughs> and they said, you can fly to Colombo. And I remember it being £60 and we were like, okay, that's great. And we came down with these flight tickets. And we said, where is it? Where is Colombo? We discovered it was off the coast. You know, it was an island south yeah. of India. And I had the wherewithal to uh, send off for a little brochure from the uh, Sri Lankan Tourist Bureau. So we had a little, you know, <laughs> less than A5 brochure. <laughs> and on the basis of this, we spent six or seven weeks in... Um, Sri Lanka oh and word. went up to India. Apparently it is a most fantastic place. It was, it was. And in 1978, I think it was classified as one of the cheapest countries in the world. Oh, wow. And we were met with such a great degree of um, friendship by the people. Okay. However little they had, they were very happy to share it. And I did a lot of travelling up through the hinterland as well, not just what might have been in those days the tourist resort. Yeah. So, and went also up into southern India. And okay. it was in the era before the Tamil Tigers. So we were very um, privileged, probably, to be able to see that part yeah. of um, Sri Lanka, which for many years later was not. Um, and then by the summer of 80, which is when I graduated uni, I then had decided I was going to do my master's degree. And since I was studying American culture, it made sense to go and do it in America. Okay. So that was the start of me living in other countries. Uh, Wales is another country, but not quite the same, <laughs> not quite as far away as America. So I went there and lived um, near Chicago, a couple of hours south of Chicago for a couple of years. Did my mm. master's. The guy that I interviewed on Saturday also lived in Chicago. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> is that where all, all roads lead? <laughs> Gosh, no. Gosh, no. I mean, I say it was, it was two hours south and it could have been another world because it was in Indiana, which in those days, and still is, a very conservative yeah. Western state. 
and I was um, tasked with teaching English. That was actually in the Were you studying at the same college? Yeah, so I took my master's and then I did what was called a teaching assistantship. Okay. But essentially that meant I was an English teacher for courses for undergraduates. Cool. And um, yes, so I learned a lot because I could set them essays. So you taught them real English? And, and as a result, I was able to set all the English essays that I was able to set helped me probably become a researcher because I could ask them questions. And this was 18 year olds, you know, ask them what they thought about abortion and gun control and Iran back in those days. You were there for two years? I was. Yeah. Okay. And I traveled a lot in the States of America, around America, obviously went out to the Indian reservations went up to my one and only black Muslim rally in Chicago, which they politely but firmly told me I was the wrong colour. <laughs> so I did write my thesis on the black Muslims, but I couldn't ever kind of get into um, do it firsthand. Um, so, and yes, in interestingly, in both Swansea and in the States, I had a great interest in South African politics okay. because of that, interest in civil rights yeah so i had already south africa was already on my map but as i'm sure you would know back in the 70s we were trained to if we heard an afrikaans accent we knew that those were bad people mm. and we were trained not to buy granny smith's apples and we couldn't deal with barclays so <laughs> we were you know we were behind the behind the um, the movement <laughs> well, good so, for you yes in those days i was still not allowed to know who Nelson Mandela was. I was and so ashamed of that. When, yeah, when, and you're younger too, so you yeah. didn't even, you would have been a bit young to know what was yeah. what was being fought for. But so. the government was so good at keeping that information away from us. Yes. Because I was, once the realization came, and I was, I'm like, I don't know who this is. And one night I kind of got the guts to say to somebody, I'm really ashamed, how could I not know? And this one, neither did I. And we discovered that none of us knew because we weren't supposed to know. Mm. So the government did a very good job in keeping yes. that information yes. from us. And, it was and shocking. that is why it is so important that a generation of British students and American students and who knows, whatever there are others, they did know. We did know who he was. Yeah. So in the student days, were you still searching for a religion, searching for meaning, searching for something? Or did you find what you were looking for in your school days? I would say that I can't tell you when it would have been, but I would imagine it was sometime during that university time that I I sort of formulated a theory of being, I think I called it a naturalist. I just realised that I could commune with what appeared to be my God on mountaintops and oh. in wild places and that I felt more serene and that I could feel more connected to a bigger thing yeah. than I ever got inside a church. Ah. And so it became, I mean, certainly as of 18, I stopped going to church. I probably continued to be interested in religions because I studied the Jewish religion more so in America. And I also was interested in the American Indians religion, which is actually definitely very spiritual. But so for me, it was beginning to be a notion of, yeah, just that there is a bigger power, but it probably doesn't require the ritual and it certainly doesn't need people to fight in its cause yeah. <laughs> you know, for each other's ritual. Absolutely, yeah. So I became a bit anti the whole organised religion. Yeah. Um, and I probably also learnt 
in those university years about the notion of religion as the opiate for the masses, so yep. that it wasn't necessarily the thinking person's thing to do either. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So after America, where did we go? I know there was a stint in Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, yes. Well, no, after America, I... Ah, oh, no, yeah, I took... I won a scholarship when I was in America. It was called the um, International Peace Prize. Oh, wow. Yes, and I I thought the best way I could use that uh, was to go travelling and see more countries. And, you know, and it, it, it was self-indulgent, but it was also about understanding that if you've travelled, you've seen other cultures and it helps you reflect on your own. Yeah. But it also, we the travellers are the ones who have to be the more flexible because if you've never travelled, you cannot be expected to know beyond your own culture. Absolutely. So for me, it was a part about living, learning. And when I got back from my travels, I did consider going into the diplomatic um, okay. corps. And I also considered going into market research, which I finally did. Um, where did you travel to in that time? So in that in that year, I went down to Australia, New Zealand. That's okay. where I started because my sister was still living in New Zealand at the time. Spent about three months in those countries and that's when I first saw Sydney okay that was by then 80 yeah about 81 I think and thought that's a city you could do business with and just sort of tick that in the back of my mind okay um, so save that for later <laughs> yes that's right San Francisco had already got that tick okay. from previous times too and then I went up through Southeast Asia which actually was a huge learning curve and I spent quite a bit of time in um, Indonesia okay very Muslim and but also very Hindu in yeah. Bali, and really became very interested in Hindu and mm. um, spent quite a bit of time in India. We travelled, I I was mostly travelling alone, but at some points my ex-boyfriend joined me. And in Ladakh we went up to, so that's on the edge of Tibet, and they have a form of tantric Buddhism, which was very interesting. I couldn't quite get my head around what it was all about. But up there they do have the whole whirling dervish notion where the priests can go into trance okay and i saw a really interesting special festival where the trancers were on the roof and they they're in circles they'd sing dance in circles a bit i realized later like jewish kabbalah um, okay. rituals so trying to think where i went after that from southeast asia yes india ladakh did my first trek in nepal okay and then came home from Nepal. So it was mostly it wasn't Whoa. Europe. It was mostly Asia and Southeast Asia. So. so it's interesting that from what you say is that you always stayed interested, fascinated by the religion, religious connotation to where you were. Was it because it formed such part of the culture of, of where you were? Yeah, I think I, I probably was interested in it because I understood how it was moulding people. You know, I, I could tangibly feel the difference between Bali, which was a Hindu island, and then I just had to cross the water into Sumatra, which was a Muslim, and feel the difference, the impact on me as a woman, but the difference in the vibe of the countries. And okay. so that sort of caught my attention. I was interested to understand that some religions could make you very happy, some religions no, maybe not so. Yeah. And I... I guess it was, it's been over a long period of years. I realised that some religions are a lot harder to stick with and require a lot more of you. And probably Christianity in its nowadays form is one of the least, it's one of the easiest ones. And were you aware at that stage of how these 
this knowledge, how these experiences were influencing you as a person? I knew the travelling was impacting me big time. I don't know if I especially thought the religion was. Uh, But I would say that trek in Nepal probably confirmed for me the whole rightness of being up in mountains. Okay. To the extent now that I, if I do feel like I'm not coping, that would be my preference is to get somewhere clean and clear where I can breathe. Because you climbed Everest. No, I didn't climb Everest, no. But I did, recently I did part of the Everest Base Camp Trail. Okay, yes. I, but, I remember yes, seeing something yes. like that. And back in, it, it had been 25 years before that that's when I had done the Annapurna Circuit, which goes around the Annapurnas. Okay. Which was a really big hike. And it was only just recently opened back in those days. And we were doing, you know, I was trying to cross bridges where there was missing planks and there was ah! ropes and I oh my god no. so definitely come to grips with your own mortality and also your own fears and your vertigo yeah and, <laughs> definitely your vertigo yes, yes yes and this time this past trick trek in Nepal I discovered uh, a Buddhist mantra that got me over most of the swing bridges and around most of the terrifying corners and I just chant it so and I figure you know, whatever that higher power is, they're not really worrying whether I'm a practicing Buddhist or not. I'm, I'm invoking help from something bigger than myself. Yeah, oh, lovely. So, Have you yeah. ever been into an Afrikaans too? In Ingekerk? No. <laughs> yes, you were. We were at a funeral in Ingekerk. Huh, okay, yes. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. one thing that Afrikaans churches can't do, according to me, is sing. <laughs> I mean, I will never forget that. <laughs> they do a jubilant song and they do it la, 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 la. And there's absolutely nothing jubilant yes. about this. They're going to wake up for God's sake. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, well, I went to some of those storefront American evangelicals. Oh, fabulous. Those big choirs. Yeah, oh. big choirs and they're getting up and the laying on of hands and the speaking of the tongues and it's all very, very exciting. I always, I always wonder, I often wonder how I would have connected with religion had I grown up in a church with singing like that because I love singing mm. and I could never relate to, to what they did in the Afrikaans churches. So I, I'm sure you could have pulled me in with, yes. with, with, with happy, joyous, fabulous singing. I mean, I yes. love those voices those big yeah oh it's lovely and that's that's the good side because it actually releases something in us which we all share and then you get that resonance Mm. and that vibration which is a higher a higher power but Pierre and I were listening to one on the way the other day and it was called fix me Jesus if I need fixing (laughs) and we both said there's the problem because it doesn't it doesn't say let me fix myself or let me empower myself Mm. it's like fix me jesus if i need fixing and it's like no that ain't never gonna happen yeah because it's just got the wrong end of it and that's that's the side of religion that becomes the opiate for the masses yeah you can sit and do nothing but as long as you you know absolutely pray it doesn't strike me that that's going to work yeah Um, definitely and that's what i like about the concept of a higher power in recovery that mm. I got to learn is kind of, they always said, you know, God as in good or direction or whatever you, you believe, he will move the mountain. 
But if you don't pitch up with a fucking shovel, it's not going to happen. You know? <laughs> and that I really like. You know, you need to really yes. dig in and, and do your bit. And the power greater than yourself will be there in support mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But no, you yes. can't sit on your chair and think this, that this is going to happen. And that I like, that, that I can identify with. Mm-hmm. And my mother and I have such... Yaku says I bully my mom. <laughs> and he's, I suppose he's right in a way because she's a good Christian woman who both bakes good milk tarts and all those type of things, but right. she doesn't do her bit. Right, so it's a more she, passive... She prays and then she worries. Mm. And the two are nearly, in my mind, contradictory to each other. Mm. <laughs> and she believes that worrying is doing her bit. And <laughs> yeah. I, th- that old dog, I'm, try- I'm struggling to teach new tricks because God, he doesn't yes. get it. And I fight with her, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that you lose sleep. After yeah. you've prayed, why do you lose sleep? <laughs> do something about it. The whole current New Age thinking is that the universe can't hear positive from negative. So if you, if you worry, I wish, it, I wish this wouldn't happen, I wish this wouldn't happen, <laughs> they just hear the would happen. You know? <laughs> so the universe is like, okay, that's what, that's what they want to happen. Absolutely. So I think you've got to be quite careful with your positive thinking. Make sure it's framed in positive. Be very, very careful what you pray for and be very specific what you're going to ask for. That's something I learned as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, sorry, we went to a complete different route. <laughs> back back to, so left Naples, went back to the UK. Yes, went back to the UK. And so I was quasi-engaged to an American and I had to decide if I was going back after the year of traveling, if I was going back to yeah. America and to get married. And I struggled with the decision and eventually didn't. I, I found that I, th- I understood American culture because I'd studied it intellectually, but I kind of put myself on the position of being on the edge of the um, football pitch at, you know, at Little League. And I thought, I don't think I'll know how to be an American if I've got to be a mum and raise children okay. in this culture. And so I, you were okay to observe, but, but you weren't really okay to partake. You know, and there was probably other other issues as well. But for whatever reason, I decided I wouldn't go back and settle there. So that's when I actually started my first kind of graduate career in uh, in London. Okay. So I'd managed to put off working for a living until I was about 24. <laughs> which is quite good. Highly successful. Well done. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and then I and then I took it up, and I of course was then in London in the Thatcher years and it was the time to be in London it was all big shoulder pads and braces and stockbrokers and, and big hair big hair and big earrings and we were all making a fortune and buying property so this is now mid 80s that's right yeah okay and I didn't go into the diplomatic corps and didn't yet fully go into research. What I went into was marketing, but for a travel company. Okay. So it continued the theme that allowed me then to work in travel for business. And I did then a lot of traveling in um, Spain and countries that I'd never traveled to as a child because they were a bit sort of passe for some of the English at those days. (laughs) And I also then got made in charge of the African resorts mm. which sort of started off the whole thing about Africa. Ah. and I would also say that I watched Meryl Streep in Out of Africa and it had a 
huge effect on me. <sighs> I heard her say I had a farm in Offra <laughs> oh, that... at the foot of the Ingong Hills. <laughs> Such a beautiful line, it isn't was. it? <laughs> and I thought, I'm going there. I'm going there. And it was, yeah, it just, it was. I was going there. Because when I point. think of you in Africa, I think of you in Kenya. Mm. Is it? Well, Am I right? I was, that's where I was first aiming for. Okay, cool. Yes. So I worked in... Worked in uh, London um, probably through the 80s until about all the way through the 80s and then took another year off with my <laughs> partner at the time. Um, <laughs> Sorry for giggling, but <laughs> it doesn't, for, for somebody as dynamic as you, it doesn't sound like work was a very high priority in your life. <laughs> well, it was kind of like I was doing it and doing it well, but I always thought this was not what life was really about. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. So we took the year off and we spent four months managing a ski resort in Verbier. Oh, wow. So improving our, our skiing and our French, hopefully, which was really good fun. It was a good, good experience. So it was the year in which I turned 30. Okay. And I probably felt I was one of the older, um, you know, travellers at that stage, but it was good experience. And then from there, we... That was where the trip through Africa started. So oh. flew down to um, Harare, sat in Harare's garden on the day after we arrived, read our rough guide and looked up at each other and was like, oh my God, we needed a tent, didn't we? <laughs> and we were only nine hours away from London and we didn't have any camping gear with us. <laughs> Had to spend the next two days trying to run to earth the most shocking South African tent that cost us hundreds of US dollars um, because we wanted to go to Botswana and okay. it was way too oh. expensive back in the day to for, for us to afford to be in hotels. What do you mean back in the day for us? Have you well, seen Botswana travel prices? South well, Africans, normal people like me can't do it. Yes. There is just, unless I'm willing to go really rough and I've never came to my life. No, it's impossible. Yeah. Which so is so a, sad. Yeah, no. And so I feel very privileged because again, I got to go through the Okavango oh, Basin on oh Makuru. Oh, God. It's possibly one of the highest things mm. on my bucket list. It was pretty oh. special. It was pretty good. And we... And how did you travel? Train? Hiking? Everything. We travelled through buses and trains, always on public local okay. transport. We were on a shoestring. We hitchhiked. Uh, a funny story I have was hitchhiking into the Chobe National Park which, in retrospect, hitchhiking in a game park was of questionable <laughs> validity. And um, we, got to, we got a lift with uh, the guys who were tasked with hunting down a lion who had just taken some, uh, an animal, and they were bundu bashing and coming through, the, and they were checking the depth of spore and figuring out where the lion had last been seen. It was very exciting. And then we turned up in the middle of this national park, which... I have to say it was probably my first interaction with South Africans, which didn't involve not eating their apples. Um, and we were awfully grateful because these South Africans, you know, they had beer and they had brise and they had refrigeration and we had absolutely nothing but a tent. And they'd look at us and say, do you want to join us? And they would take us out on some game because oh, that was wow. one of the real problems. You suddenly realise here I'm in a game park, but I haven't got transport. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was where I learnt that the... The, the language of um, shaking like a leaf really can happen because we had a, a baboon circling around us 
and baboons sound awfully like lions yeah. and sniffing. And I kept saying to my boyfriend, no, no, I read, I read that um, wild animals think that tents are solid structures, except elephants. So we're okay. And he was like, <laughs> don't think so. So it was a good, it was a very good trip. It sounds lovely. Yes. And we, we had campfires where oh, I remember a South African coming up saying, have you seen a hyena with a fridge in its mouth? <laughs> it's just, it, it just tore my door off. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, and we would we would be sitting around the campfire, and if you look behind your shoulder, you could see our eyes glinting. Oh, I would. So, yeah, that was Chobi when it was very wild. I would have yeah. been scared shitless. Ah, but it was good, and we did. It sounds yeah, wonderful. so we went up through Malawi. We hitchhiked. We missed Mozambique because the Teti corridor still wasn't safe. Um, so you saw Malawi Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went did up you stay through. on the islands? Yes, we were mostly oh, at lovely. yeah, mostly down in the um, south, but travelled up through because we crossed into Tanzania that way. Oh, wow. hitchhiked across into Tanzania, got really the third degree about where's your South African stamp. We're like, we didn't go, we didn't go. Where is it? Have you got other paper? Did you give them a piece of paper? I said we didn't go to South Africa. Yeah. And they're like, why did you not go to South Africa? For this very reason, we flew into Zimbabwe to yeah. avoid South Africa. So that was uh, studiously avoiding. Freaky. What may have become, you know, my future life's home. Yeah. <laughs> um, went up all the way up through Tanzania, Zanzibar, up to Kenya, way up right into the sort of Samburu territory and up to Lake uh, Turkana, which I fell in love with. Wanted to go and teach English there, <laughs> but never quite made it back. Yeah, and then from there, from, um, from Africa, oh, climb Kilimanjaro. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, which was another, you know, great sort of spiritual place to go for me. And um, from there we travelled back through America and back to England. And that was sort of, that was the year. Wow, sounds absolutely mm. amazing. Mm, it was, it was a really, really good trip. So we subsequently, um, yeah, went back and did a bit more work in England. But I was looking for something else. And I went on holiday with my cousin, who was at that stage living in Zimbabwe. I found myself at the top of the Dombashawa Hills and looking out and I thought, yeah, it's time I watched that movie. It's time to come to Africa. <gasps> so I did. I went home. I wrote three letters. One was to Kenya, one was to Zimbabwe, one was to South Africa. See if I could find work. And, and what year was it now? Um, so that would have been 92. Okay, so things were changing for, yes. for us. So you were okay to come here? Yes, okay. yes. South Africa responded the next day by phone. Oh, wow. Said, if you can get out here and you've got the skills, we need you. Oh, wow. And so, yes, I did, I did have that debate, but it, it was after Nelson Mandela, had, his release had been guaranteed and we knew 94 was coming. Awesome. Yeah. So I actually arrived in August of 93. And that's when we met. Exactly, Yes. Because we met very soon after you virtually put your tiny little feet on yes. African on South African soil. Yes, yes. Pierre and Yuri and I were saying it's 25 years yeah. since we all met. And yes, you were some of the first people I met in the country. And what I, exciting times those were. Hey? It was. And I was arriving and everyone who was certainly in the business that I was working in, they were all saying, what, are, what the heck are you doing? Why have you come here? Everyone's trying to get out. <laughs> Don't you understand? We're all trying to get out. 
And I, I realised that, you know, the people who were trying to get out needed to go. And the people who were coming in were probably going to be the right people yeah. um, for the countries. And it's interesting that you arrived. Our circle was predominantly Afrikaans, gay, atheist. <laughs> I think everything you wouldn't expect to find in Africa, in South Africa. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's funny, I had no, in, no previous experience, I think, of... And atheists wouldn't have worried me. Because it didn't, I would have been more worried if you'd have been staunchly yeah. for a trickery kind of, what's that, yes. reform, Dutch yeah. reform. That would have been a problem. Cool. So then Cape Town happens. Yes. And that seemed to have been the beginning of a love affair. Yeah, absolutely, wasn't it? I just fell in love. And I really did feel that Africa was my soul's home. It was a sense of belonging for yeah. the first time and feeling it was really easy to say this here I do want to live I'm I found a, that a in Cape Town yeah I grew up in Johannesburg and the western province were the enemy <laughs> right. in, in sport and in everything yeah, so okay, I was yeah. taught to, to hate Cape Towns hate Cape Townians and when I arrived in Cape Town in 93 and my soul said you're home it was kind of no I'm not yes mm-hmm. you are no I'm not I, this can't be home my soul said this is home. I learned later that that whole notion of Table Mountain as an earth epicentre, it would have a lot of credibility. I mean, the house I bought, I felt nestled. There was yeah. Table Mountain on one side. Well, you there was Lion's nestled. Head behind me. There was Signal Hill on my other side. And I felt and the held. Sea. Yes, held yeah. in, the, in the cradle of the mountains. And yeah. it was, yeah, they were very happy years. And not years I was expecting really for them to end. I hadn't really ever quite thought I was leaving Cape Town. It was a good time, and I suppose it further cemented, because I had then a child to raise and think about religion, and knowing that I'd been raised going to church, what was my obligation? And I I actually just ended up talking to Tian about the God of the Mountain, and that we we could we could imagine that that's where God is because it's it's an easier concept for a child, and that you know that there is. A connection between all things. And I How old was he when you left South Africa? Sorry for interrupting you. Just before six. Okay, so he was already relatively. Oh, so he, he had a memory of. Oh of, yeah, of he was who he was by. Yeah, the child is formed by, some say three, others say five, but, you know, that's why he, considers himself a South African. Fabulous. <laughs> yes, we won yes. one. <laughs> and so we, spent so many weekends in nature. You know, all yeah. the times I would go out camping with him or hiking on the mountain and I think it was safer in those days so I could do a lot of that on my own and we were just often just pottering through with nature and so from Cape Town you settled in Sydney yes and emotionally spiritually connection so you had the connection in the back of your mind yes I knew Sydney would be an okay place to live but the motivating force as I remember it now was more about my sister yep. and her being declared with a terminal cancer. And because she had left me when I was 15, I felt I needed more time with her. But looking back, I do, I do think I may have been at a some kind of a crossroads because I th- jumped out of my life, you know, in two months and made that decision. And didn't realise really the ramifications. And looking back, maybe a rational decision would have been to say, I could visit my sister several times, mm. but not I could drop my life and go. 
yeah. because I didn't, I couldn't get to New Zealand. There wasn't really enough work for me there. I got to Australia and then sh- shuffled backwards and forwards for the, the last sort of year and a half of her life. So I look back and I think, well, what else was going on at that point in time? And I think it was that Tion was five. I had realised I was probably too late to have a second child. I still hadn't found a partner. So I was going through a patch of sadness about that things were not still kind of quite aligning how I might have wished them to be. So in my mind, I had never left and I never broke faith with Cape Town. But maybe there was a part of me that thought "Mm, I should... You know, I should get to my family, I should support my family. But I did think I was coming back the year or so later. I thought, you know, I'd spend the time with my sister and then come home. Yeah. Um, So that was the bit that you realise that when you make a decision that you don't call a decision, it can be irrevocable. Because it took my life off in a tangent. But soon after sister, dad got ill. Not, no, not, not soon. Not soon, quite a lot longer. In my head, it feels like in very, very close to each other. No, no. So my sister... As I said, she had her illness between 2-2, two, two, she died in 2-3, end of 2-3. No, the thing that came in the middle was I got married in 2004. That's what kept you there. That's what kept me there. That's okay. Why that's why I didn't get home. And that's why there was a lot of un, unfinished business and some unresolved grief about not being able to get back to my soul's home. And, and for Tian too, he, he always thought I'd made the wrong decision by staying. Okay. And, you know... We don't make wrong decisions. We just, they are the decisions and we, that's how life evolves. Yeah. So it was a relationship that lasted six years. And at the end of that, I probably could have still come home. But for whatever reason, we ended up fighting a rather belligerent divorce. And the lawyer said, you can't come home here because you, it will be an uncontested and you'll lose everything. So. Yes. So I ended up staying, and because it took another two years, by that stage, then Tian was going into high school. And oh, my it, word, yeah. So. It sort of, it, it felt as if the windows and the doors kept closing. And yeah. So all I did was keep faith with him and make sure we come back every year. That was my commitment to him when he was five. I'll, I will not lose you, your country. Fabulous. Yes. Yeah, so that was probably the hardest and darkest part of my life, that the breakup and that divorce. And you were virtually alone. I mean... Was Dad still alive then? Yeah, no, my mum and Dad were still alive in New Zealand. I was in Australia. They have always been supportive parents, so they were always there to support me. I had good friends around me. I came home to Cape Town to lick my wounds on many occasions. Yeah, so we kind of fought the the divorce through 2008. 2009 February, we celebrated my 50th. And you were at that drinks at the Mount Nelson. Mm. And I was in a really good space. Yes. So that was... So that was, that was a high point, and that I That was thought, the high point of my addiction. That was the... Oh, that was see, the I wouldn't have known that at all. of my addiction. I no, didn't know. And when it, I, when it emerged later that you had had a major drug problem, I was like, well, when did that happen? How could that have happened? That was at the height of my addiction. Ah, okay. So, by, 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 but at that stage, you were in a good place, you see. I was, and then literally the wheels came off for me. Shortly after I went back, okay. I discovered that... It wasn't all over because I'd had a court hearing in the December of 2008. I thought it was over and we were settling. It turned out that it wasn't and he was going to try and drag us through the courts. So most of 2009, I was in a very high state of anxiety because, yeah, I I started to feel so um, threatened. It was just, it was getting hideous. And, you know, he was in pain and that's how he responded to it. And I just was like, just let me out of this. I just, you just have to let me go now. Yeah. 
The divorce finally came through in April of 2010. April Fool's Day, I think. (laughs) And that should have been it. But funnily enough, I recognised that that catapulted me into a depression of note. And it was a sense of the failing, the failure, that I had failed in something that's the most important thing. I'd failed to be a good wife. Mm. I'd failed to manage to be a mother to another stepchild. I had potentially traumatized Tian and you know I'd lost my country and I had really lost it because part of the condition of the marriage with Ray was that I had to sell the house in 2002 three and then Cape Town went ballistic and yeah. I couldn't actually afford to buy back in oh, my word. so I'd really oh, lost it I'd lost yeah. my back door at that point um, so I uh, I eventually found something that you may or may not have heard of called breathwork yes Oh, wow. Yes. So I found breathwork and I... Oh, my God, that's powerful. I took a whole... Yes, I took a whole year, the whole of 2010, I trained to be a breathworker because you to be a breathworker, you must do at least 100, oh, 50, 150 breaths in... Oh, my know, God. Giving and, giving and receiving, big time. And I then, by the end of 2010, I felt like possibly like you, that I'd almost finished with the rehab, but I couldn't, I wasn't ready to leave the community. So I then went on and did the next year was a following stage of the training. So I am a qualified breath worker. I actually never practice it. Um, and it's... My mouth is hanging yes. open. Yes. I, I didn't know this. No, I got very into it. And that was such a healing experience in my life. Yeah, yeah. I did it twice. Oh, oh yes. my God, it was beautiful. Very confronting, very exposing, very going back, dealing with your pain your original Mm. pain finding it through your very body and your pores yeah yelling Mm. it out screaming it a lot of primal screaming um crying yeah oh my god and being physically physically sick and and finding out kind of working backwards to the scene of the crime you know what went wrong where what's caused the pain and and that big learning that it isn't really what happens to us it's what we make of it yeah it's what you chose to make of yeah. your experiences. And obviously with breathwork, generally it's couched in a whole new age spirituality. So I got I got exposed to things that I had probably never chosen to know much about. You know, about more about yoga, more about spiritual beliefs, more about new age ways of seeing the world, more about energy and the passing of energy between us and between animate and inanimate things and frequencies of the universe and you know just yeah just I became a big believer and it was a really important two years of my life and again I had then a community there was eight or ten of us who went through this who became very very close I can imagine how close you get through doing that wow but I suppose what eventually happened in 212 was I felt healed enough to go back to society as it were and I also was realising that I had not done very much work in those years because I'd put a lot of energy into learning. And I was so, sort of, so you actually took another two years off? Well, I, yeah, in, yeah, I suppose in, I did really. And so yeah. I ended up thinking I need to get real about getting my finances back on track again. Yeah. And I suppose going back to that secular world slightly divorced me from my connection with the universe yeah. so I'm probably not as spiritually connected now as I was back but it then. takes work we need to work on on that connection it is 
Yeah. It's one of those classic things, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yes. So I, I feel that, um, yeah, the, the last year or so I have been aware that I should be going back and doing some more breath work and I should be reconnecting. Going to Nepal was good for me to reconnect with awesome. my sense of where I can find God. And I had a great experience with my Sherpa because they, again, as Buddhists, are mm. they're like a higher being. And, you know, within the third day of the trek, I knew that I had to put my life in his hands. We had to cross a landslide that had oh, only happened rude. two days before and had killed five people. Oh, and my God. I had to cross this landslide or go home. And, you know, I put my hand in his and trusted that he would get me across. Mm. And it's, so where I'm at now is probably aware of having lost a little bit of my spirituality and knowing that it's probably the reason that I'm more stressed and a more busy, busy, busy. Yeah. I get busy head. For me, it is important to get back to a spiritual practice, but I avoid it because we all do. You know, it's easier to avoid and block and mm. that's when we do drugs drink and drugs and yeah. food whatever it might be the things that can suppress it i think breathwork is one of the most powerful oh, modalities oh, oh, it was amazing. highly under underestimated Jeez. and under known i mean there's a huge breathing movement and it's becoming very hip and trendy to breathe but breathwork is way more aggressive more invasive more mm. in your face and so it often doesn't get happening yeah but some of the people i worked with went on to introduce breathwork into business environments because it does break down all barriers and yeah. there, are, there can be no artifice breathwork mm. is is i think is real i mean for whatever reason you know the rebirthing yes i've had these experiences yeah. of rebirth i've met my inner child i've understood where she felt i betrayed her and i can now know when i'm doing it exactly it doesn't mean i always get it right anymore mm. but i do it like in selling my house last year I realized it was a bit like it brought back the trauma of selling the Cape Town house and my inner child was screaming. She was like, I don't, you don't want you to do this. I don't want, I, want, I don't feel safe. I'm not yeah. happy about this. You and always I do was, this to me. Yes. And I was doing my masculine, we must just, uh, we must just get on with this. Just button up, yeah. move it, get on with it, do it. And I was aware of it, but I still managed not to quite have the, whatever it is, to indulge my inner child and just say, okay, I get that. Yeah. All right, let's just cancel this sale and not do it. Because it's, you're left intellectually thinking, yeah, but a, ch a parent has to be a parent and maybe the child doesn't know right. And it's, that is that, mm. you know, you're meant to go with the, the heart feeling. Yeah. Because I live a lot more in my head than in my heart. And the whole of that course was all about moving into your heart Absolutely. and functioning from a heart space. I um, The reason why the teddy bear is on my bed mm. is because I tuck him in every night. Mm. I tuck my okay. inner child in every night. Um, yep. So we're busy reading Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, so yes. every night is one chapter of Chronicles of Narnia. And I feel so close to him. It is Because I kind of stopped for a while. Yeah. And then I started doing codependence work. Oh, and okay. the minute I started doing codependence work, I just connected with my recovery again. And um, I suddenly realized that I've been, I've been neglecting him. Mm. So I got Chronicles of Narnia and I feel so close to him. We, we're so in touch. And I know when I'm in touch with him, I'm, I'm just far more aware. Yeah. I'm far more, I don't know what the word is, but 
Yeah, it makes me feel really sad. It's like that they talk about being in um, in alignment with the universe, that everything, when you're in flow, yeah. things will happen easily. And when you're trying to push against it yes. or you're not sure that's what you want to do, it won't come right. Yeah. And that's why that, as we were talking, you can't just pray and worry. You've actually got <laughs> to put your energy and your vision yes. behind it and just be a complete force towards it. You know, yes, there's a moment where you have to put it out to the universe and it may come back to you in a different form than quite you expected, but it will come right. Is this in a lasting? No, it's not a lasting. It never is. My head doesn't work that way. Meditation? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There was a very ugly face being pulled there. <laughs> Do you know that I, I'm a big fail, and I, I really know I shouldn't. I can't, even even in two years' worth of breath work, and there would always be meditations at the beginning and the end of the sessions, and I'd be like twiddling my fingers and thinking, shh, shh, shh. And then I even bought so this book. So the head is just far too... Yes. I bought this book called Hurry Up and Meditate. <laughs> and I haven't even read it. You know, it's, it's that bad. I really struggle to do the whole sitting mm. and being mindful. And then my Rolfer, because I also see a Rolfer, um, that's a whole different thing. And he said, oh, he said, you know, I think you might be beating yourself up about the sitting still and emptying your head. He said, didn't you tell me you go for like three week hikes? Exactly. I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, I think you'll find that's a meditation. So yeah. I've sort of realized that what it, what I need to do when I'm in monkey brain mode is I just need to get out into the yeah and if that's what it has to be for me there's no no fail in that something like like just the the exercise of walking the the, the rhythm of walking for yes. for Empty. me jogging is meditative yeah I noticed that my best friend and Tian's girlfriend both gave me books to bring to Cape Town <laughs> which was their way of saying busy 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 <laughs> and. I think I thought coming here, I would be by the mountain, I would sit, I would meditate, I would read books. You know, what have I done? I've made it a very fretful renovation process. <laughs> so I know I'm still not quite there ready yet. It's, it's on its way. It's, there's, a big, there's a big calming that's due. But that's a nice thing about, I can't believe I say these things because it's so not the way I used to think, but this is a journey. Mm. So it's okay to not be able to do it now. Yeah. Because it, it might happen for you at some stage later. Yes. And it does come and grab you. Yeah. Like when I needed it, Breathwork founded me and I knew how long I had to do it. And yeah. if I've fallen off the wagon, when it's enough of a need, it'll I'll be back there. Yeah. You know, or I'll be back at some some sort of a modality. Absolutely. But it is in the meanwhile you do think, Why why are you doing this? Because it makes you not at one with the world. You sort of think, why do you go back into your monkey brains? Yeah, I, I live on high anxiety. So it's about making peace with who you are and tempering it at the edges, I think. Yeah. Um, and not losing sight that we do affect, we create our own destinies, you know, our futures. You have one of the most fascinating heads that I've ever met in my life. The, the way you absorb, but... While you absorb, you you attach meaning and structure. Mm. It's fascinating, and, and it, it's it, it's so natural for you. Yes, that, classify and codify, kind of. Yeah, yeah, constantly, and and it's never. It's very seldom that something's not in your head where it's supposed to be. It just kind of it just slots yeah. in. It's but fascinating. I guess it is that way of then I can keep it. It is then parked 
carefully and yeah. under control. And yeah. you know, I'm not as good at the feeling of uh, the heart feelings. Yeah, I get I get uh, fear and excitement easily mixed up. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I discovered from breathwork that 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 would go right back to a childhood of going up to hospitals, where the trip was exciting because I was got new frilly knickers or a new dress. But the fear around the hospital and what they were going to do yeah. was very scary. So I don't, I'm not very clearly wired to know when okay. I'm excited or where I'm just yeah. frightened. So oh, okay. wow. Amazing. Well, Gail. You'll have to do some cutting this, and editing there. This was <laughs> absolutely awesome. It was really so fabulous. I'm looking forward to our lunch. I want to talk to you more. But thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so, so much. Thanks for reminding me about things. That's what most people say. <laughs> This was a marathon chat, of which I enjoyed every moment of. I hope you did too. Like I mentioned in the introduction, we only see each other about once a year, so we miss out a lot of the details of each other's lives. Interestingly enough, much of what we talked about in this podcast was stuff of which the pertinent information became known to me only during this conversation. Again, we see how life seems to take us by the hair and drag us backwards through the bushes. Yet, with some sense of spirituality, we seem to make it through okay, with a few scars and a whole soul filled with lessons. If you have any feedback or remarks, please feel free to pop me an email at freddy.rensberg at gmail.com or connect with me on social media. It will be great to hear from you. If you want to hear more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za, or on Twitter at Rensburg Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. Be safe. Bye.